0: Both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. That is, the, the letter is about the past and the present and the future, and tonight we're going to present something of a theological history of FIEC, so... Whatever else, keep to Peter open before you, the detailed outline of the talk you can see in your booklets. Uh, there's a great bookshop up there uh, that I hope you'll be visiting and uh, looking and buying, but I'd really like you to be buying uh, this book called Let the Word Do the Work, which I haven't written. <laughs> But to my embarrassment has been written in my honour, which is very kind. It's a series of essays. I love these kinds of books because I don't have to start at page one and work to the end. I can, I can read the one that I like and put it down and then read one that was three earlier next. There's no necessary much connection except half of it is about the ministry of the word and half of it is about how the ministry of the word works and all of them refer to me, which is massively embarrassing, except one, which was written by my son. Um, <laughs> even my brother has a passing shot at me, but all the others, but they are terrific essays. I mean, generally, uh, when I'm given a book, I may or may not read it, but when I was given this book, I had no choice. Uh, I really had to read it and it was terrific and even the ones that I left to last turned out to be really really good essays on the ministry of the word and how it works and as I've been involved in so much of the ministries that lay behind the ministries that you're engaged in it actually is fascinating to have people remind me of what we did because I don't remember what we did frankly I was too busy doing it to ever keep a record of it but these people were around and they say this is what I did which is really interesting to find out (laughs) and they're really interesting I think they're terrific essays and I'd really commend it to you because it's just an encouragement to keep working in the word of God as you minister that word and shows you how it happens in application and it's an easy read it's you know one chapter as you go to bed at night kind of read Now, FIEC has a problem with its title. Uh, Same problem in England. I was over there spending time with them earlier this year and they have exactly the same problem with the title. That is the word, the letter I. For I is independent, but of course that's not what you actually mean. You don't mean independent, you mean self-governing. That's what you mean, which is not really independent. It, It shouldn't mean independent because... Uh, the Bible would be against it. Uh, total independence is not the biblical way. So you can see it in certain passages that are not in two Peter, which will stick up on the screen. For example, in uh, one Corinthians, all in one Corinthians, chapter four, one Corinthians chapter four, verse seventeen, where Paul speaks and uh, and says to them. Uh, that is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways as I teach them everywhere in every church. That is, he didn't just let all the churches go and do their own thing. He had a clear idea what he was trying to teach them. I'm working on the as This is the NIV. You'll see slightly different things coming up, of course. Or again, in, uh, in sticking in 1 Corinthians, go to 7 verse 17. 7 verse 17. And what do we read there uh, again? Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. That is, there's an apostolic rule that is applied to the churches as well. Or again, you can see it in uh, chapter, where's the next one? 11.16. 11, 11.16. 11, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. There is a particular pattern of ministry here, of relationship between men and women that he's talking about here, that is common across all the churches of God. Or again, we can see in chapter 14, verse 33, where he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of saints, the women should keep... So... Paul has a view of the pattern of life and ministry that is common and should be common to all the Pauline churches, and I'm sure he thinks, therefore, all the Christian churches. So the sense of total independence, that you do whatever you like because you are your own church, is not the pattern of New Testament church life. Furthermore, it's effectively impossible to do because we are all heirs of our tradition. And no matter how much we like to kind of get away from our traditions, we can't. Uh, it's kind of funny to see people trying desperately to do something different to the traditions they've got. Because it's, it's like in the 1960s when suddenly revolution took hold of the baby boomers. And so none of them were like their fathers anymore. They All the men wore long hair and jeans. It was the most uniform rebellion that was ever taken place. You can't actually get away from other people like that to do exactly what you want. Furthermore, it's theologically inhuman, because as one Corinthians fifteen twenty two tells us, "As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall be made all be made alive." You see, my brothers and sisters, we are not independent individuals. We are all part of one humanity, and we're all part of one Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not right for us to think of ourselves in that kind of Western individualism because it's not the way the Bible thinks of ourselves. It's We are part and parcel of the same humanity. So tonight I'm going to look at our connection, especially to the past, to understand our present and to be prepared for our future. And so I go to 2 Peter, which is the great book for evangelicals, is 2 Peter. I hope you you expect, every book of the Bible is wonderful, but the book I'm expounding at the moment is the most important. You just need to grasp that as a fact. And 2 Peter is a terrifically important book for evangelicals. The whole letter speaks of their present status. Chapter 1 verse 1, a faith of equal standing. 1 verse 3. All things that pertain to life and godliness is theirs already, because in one four they're partakers of the divine nature, having escaped already the corruption that is in this world. That's their present status. And their present activities are to be making every effort, one five following, to supplement their faith with these great Christian virtues and characteristics that are there, so that in one10 you may be diligent to make your calling and election sure, because if you practice these things, you will never fall, because not only is there a present status, not only is that the present activities they're engaged in, there's a future expectation. Not to fall, in verse 10, but verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now the letter's purpose was written in the context of Peter coming to the end of his life. So verse 14 of chapter 1 still. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Uh, he's acting now. He's writing now because he knows the end is in sight. It's like to Timothy. Where again Paul, you know, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. Uh, there's only now waiting for me the crown that is coming to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Peter knows he's coming to an end. But you and I need to put ourselves imaginative back into that context. Our connection with the Lord Jesus Christ is through Peter, but Peter is about to be removed. So I can't go and talk to him anymore about what Jesus did or what Jesus said or where he went. The the oral history is now going. It is now passing. Now maybe I know John or somebody else who's going to hang around a little longer. But Peter was such a central figure and presumably the people he writes to are the ones he's connected with. And for them, their apostle is now disappearing. And so their connection to their saviour is now going through a a particularly difficult, different style and, and character. And so he knows that. And therefore he's writing this, verse 12, as a reminder. He's writing this so that, verse 15, they would always be able to recall what it is he said. He's writing it, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 1. Now this is the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved, in both of them. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. Remember. The predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Here, This is written that we would always remember so that we know how to live now and know what to expect in the future. It looks forward to the eternal future of chapter 1 verse 11. It looks forward in chapter 3 verse 10, 3 verse 10, to the day of the Lord which will come like a thief in the night and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are on it will all be exposed. It's looking forward to the eternal day, the welcome into the eternal kingdom, to the day of judgment, to the end. It's looking for the long term future but it's also looking for the immediate future because Verse 14 of chapter 1, he's about to die and with his death they lose touch but more, chapter 2 verse 1, but false prophets also arose among you just as there'll be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So in your immediate future, not only is your apostle going to be taken away from you so you no longer have direct access to the Lord Jesus through his living word, but also false teachers are coming. Just as there were false prophets in the past, so you're going to get the false teachers. They're going to arise from among you, from within you. You might remember the Apostle Paul when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, the thing that he warned them about the false shepherds that were coming, the wolves that were coming, from among your own number are they going to come. My brothers and sisters, we sit in a room here with people, as was described earlier, zealous for the Lord and the Lord's word who are now out there preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is unimaginable that the people amongst whom we're sitting tonight, some will be false shepherds, some will be wolves, some will be leading the church astray. We do not think that of each other, but we should. Because the scripture warns us not to trust each other. Oh yeah, we have to trust each other, but we mustn't trust each other. Because it's from amongst us that the false teachers will come. That's a nasty thought, isn't it? But yet, that's what's going to happen. They come amongst the congregation. The, the, the false teachers outside the congregation, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they don't worry you, do they? I mean, I engage them in long conversations so as to protect the rest of the community from them. <laughs> But I, I'm never rattled by them or worried by them. And I've, I have not seen in my years, you can correct me that you know somebody, but I have not seen in my years any Bible-believing Christian being moved across to Jehovah's Witnesses or to Mormons. Never seen one of them. I've seen people get sideswiped by new cults that have come, um, the, the the Church of Christ, the Sydney Church of Christ one that came and which I presume there's the Perth Church of Christ and there's the but yeah, when it first came and there was a thing called the Children of Love, the Family of Love with Moses uh, David what his name is, when it first arrived Scripture Union advocated it and other Christian organisations because it was street evangelism took them some time to discover that it was actually street prostitution uh, physically literally uh, girls were sent out as whores for Christ but it took Scripture Union and other Christian organisations a little while to discover this. In the meantime all kinds of people got caught up in it but generally it's not the outsiders that are the problem for nearly all of us can talk and think of people within the congregations we've been involved in who have gone off into false teaching and led others into false teaching and nearly all of us can think of Denominations or organizations that we've been involved in that have actually gone off the rails over time through false teaching from within. So, FIEC mustn't think that it's hot too holy to be ever affected by such a disease. Cancer is inside the body, not outside. And the false teachers, well, that's part of the warning. Then there's another warning that comes in chapter 3. Chapter 3, knowing this verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they'll say, where is the promise of His coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So we've got to expect not only false teachers to arise within, but also scoffers from outside who will be making fun of our claims and the claims of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the expectation of the future for Peter. That Peter has after he has gone. This is what he's telling them is going to come. And what we have to do as, we, as he looks forward is to patiently wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. To hasten the day, which we do every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, to hasten the day. But we are to wait in chapter 3 verse 11 in holiness and godliness. In fact, 3.14, we're to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. So we wait seeking to live the way the Lord Jesus Christ wishes us to live. Living the age to come while we're still in this age. The age of holiness and righteousness and godliness. And so... Chapter 3, verse 14, the epistle finishes, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so Aware of the patience of the Lord, that the Lord is slow to act, though slow in our terms, not his, because a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Be aware that he is slow to act. And in his patience, he has given us salvation, for that's what his patience is meant. And Paul writes of patience. You'll find it in Romans chapter 2. You'll find it in in the speech in Areopagus, how God is long-suffering and patient in order to give people the opportunity of repentance. And so knowing this, and knowing that there are unstable people who do not understand the Scriptures, because in the Scriptures there are things that are hard, not that the Scriptures are hard, but they're dealing with quite complex issues, very simply, but they're dealing with those. And these people will be twisting the Scriptures, therefore we must be on our guard, so that we're not carried away with the error of lawlessness. Uh, Lawlessness is is really the nature of sinfulness and by carried away with it then we lose our own stability. Rather what we've got to do is grow in uh, in faith and in knowledge, go in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm sorry I stumbled at that point because my spell check here has created a different word than the one I wrote. Which is um, almost blasphemous and very difficult to read and, and notice there. There's a problem with electronic writing that you don't have with the old pen, isn't there? I won't read it to you, I daren't. Um, and you shouldn't look later. Now, <laughs> here then is 2 Peter. And you'll notice it really is such an important book because you see, Christianity is an historical worldview. It goes from creation to the judgment. It's all about God at work through the whole of of history, the history of this world. And so what he wants us to do is remember the past, recall the past, remind ourselves of the past. But it's historical past. It's what actually happened. And so we do not follow myths, he says in 116. We don't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, the word myths occurs five times in the New Testament. On all five occasions, it's totally negative. In fact, it's generally put in opposition to the truth. When Mr. Bultmann, back in the 1940s, wrote that we have to demythologize the Bible... It was very clear that the man had read it so thoroughly that he hadn't noticed that the Bible was anti-mythological in the first place. You can't demythologise an anti-mythological writing. It was a complete and utter absurdity from day one, which just needed a loud German raspberry to be blown at it. <laughs> because it's not about myths. And remember, the ancient world was a world full of mythology. Uh, like our indigenous Australian culture is a world full of mythology. It wasn't like our Western Enlightenment culture. it was a mythological culture which Christianity set its face against. It is not mythology. It's history. It's eyewitness accounts, that it is all based upon it. But history is more than facts and dates. It's the interpretation of the facts. It's the historian's interpretation of the facts. See, an eyewitness is meaningless without interpretation. What was it that Peter saw? Well, we're told he didn't know. And because he didn't know, he did what any good preacher does. He started talking. When ignorance hits you, open your mouth and give vent. You never know. You might strike gold. There's a random chance. There's nothing else. And so he says, let's build three booths, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. We're told because he didn't know what to say. And what he said was totally stupid because he didn't know what he was looking at. See, a picture is not worth a thousand words. I know that because everywhere you go, in every art gallery of the world, you'll see the picture on the wall with a little caption underneath explaining it to you. Those 15 words at the bottom help you know what the picture's supposed to be saying. It's not worth a thousand words. An eyewitness sees something, will tell you what he sees, but doesn't know what he sees, and so doesn't tell you anything that's meaningful. No, no, you need words. You need the voice. Well, he got the voice from heaven. But then again, what was the voice from heaven? Who was speaking? Was this an early form of of, of, of uh, a megaphone? Was it a rumble? Was it an earthquake? What was, I mean, the voice spoke words, but did I really hear those words or not hear those words? And said, what is it all about? But the voice came speaking Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. When we received honour and glory, verse 17, the Father and the voice born from him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the very voice from heaven, for we We heard it. And that's what was said. But the interpretation doesn't lie in the fact that he heard the voice. The interpretation lay in what the voice said. For what the voice said was, the word of God, the scriptures. What the voice said was the interpretation, the prophetic interpretation. This is the psalm, this is the Messiah, Psalm 2. This is the suffering servant, Isaiah 42. That's who you should now be listening to, this one. The interpretation is authoritative when it is divine. It's divine when it is the scriptures for the prophets do not make their own interpretation but give you the divine interpretation verse not 20 knowing this first of all no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation but no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the holy spirit now a lot of people when reading that passage today find terrible problem with verse 20 What does it mean to say no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation? That is because in the last 40 years, 50 years, we have been taught that the person who interprets is the reader. But up until then, all sensible people knew the person who interprets was the writer, not the reader. But we've moved from the authority of the author you'll notice author authority are words actually connected together aren't they we've moved from the authority of the author to the authority of the reader and that change has filtered from our universities it actually came from the middle of the 20th century from the philosophy and the English departments but it's gone into our universities through our teachers down to our students and so now interpretation is the activity of the reader and then verse 20 doesn't make the slightest bit of sense Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. See how, see how it just doesn't seem to make sense as a, a sentence anymore. And that's because we're wrong-headed in our thinking. See, the Bible is God's interpretation. That's what the Bible is. Our job is to read it. Mark, learn and inwardly digest for those who come from an Anglican heritage. That is our job. Our job is to understand it in order to obey it our job is not to interpret it for to interpret the interpretation is to lead to the ignorance of solipsism uh, of of where the self is all and the only thing that is known is yourself and that of course is where post-modernity and deconstruction winds up where everybody's opinion is as equal value to everybody else's opinion and it doesn't matter what you write about what I think is all that matters And so we can't actually communicate anything to anybody anymore because they are making their own mind up as to what we're saying. It's, of course, a totally absurd position of life, but that's where atheism has taken us to in the end. You remove God and you remove the Word at the same time because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. It took 200 years for the bathwater to run out But ultimately, you see, epistemology, the knowledge of knowledge, comes from God. For without God, there is none. It is because we are in the image of God that we think and know and can communicate and speak. And indeed, God can become word. God, the word, can become human. The whole concept of word, reading, understanding is a profoundly Christian, God-centered concept, which if you try and throw away in order to evangelize you 've already given up the gospel before you 've preached it there's a real problem. Uh, a man I know was converted, listening to my brother wouldn well, 't there's a miracle. Uh, uh, people say the age of miracles has passed, but hasn't you see. anyway Peter was preaching through Colossians and St. Matthias, and this man he was an English graduate, an honours degree in, uh, in, in Shakespeare. He was converted not because of the content of what Peter said, but because of the process of reading that Peter illustrated. He said, my philosophy left me with the view that words do not in themselves mean anything. The author's opinion is an irrelevance and everybody's opinion as to what the text says is as good as anybody else's. But you have demonstrated that the author does have a meaning and that meaning can be discerned and it is the same as everybody else's. And so my atheism is wrong. And so he became a Christian. Now, we're not generally arguing with people down that philosophical bent at the end point because most Australians are too inconsistent to ever think like that. We just like to grab, well, it's all a matter of opinion. It's all a matter of interpretation. By which I means... I don't like what you're saying, but I'm not going to pay any attention to it. But if I say it like that, I'm not being rude to you. Well, of course, they're being profoundly rude as well as being profoundly stupid. It's not all a matter of interpretation. And they know that and you know that because when you say there's the exit and there's a fire, they don't say, oh, yes, I like cricket. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's total absurdity, isn't it? The fact that there are different ways of reading a text and that is a possibility does not prove that the text has not got a meaning that you should have read in the first place. And scripture twisting is the art of the game today. But we've been warned against scripture twisters. We've got to have more confidence in God and his word. Let me give you a simple illustration of it. 1 well, Corinthians 15.3 says that I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. The fact, Christ died. The interpretation for our sins. The Bible interprets the events for us. The Muslims agree with, disagree with the event. The liberals disagree with the interpretation. Didn't die for our sins. Died as an illustration of love or some of the other kind of thing that they will go on with. But see, there's the fact. There's the interpretation. The Bible is God's interpretation. It's not human interpretation, for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what we saw was made more sure by the prophetic word that came from heaven. See, we have something more sure. We have the prophetic word. So when Jesus was transfigured before them, they knew what it meant because the word told them, Psalm 2, Isaiah 42. That's that's what it's all about. And you'll see in Luke's gospel that Moses and Elijah were discussing with Jesus his exodus. Which is, of course, his his ransom price. He, the, the Lamb of God that paid, as indeed the Passover Lamb, his exodus for us. So our task then is to understand the scriptures and live by them. And our task in terms of understanding the FIC is to say, okay, well, what's our past? What's our present? What does the Bible tell us is going to be our future? What does it tell us about our past? What does it tell us about? So I'm going to give you a history now. And I'm not telling you that I'm a prophet who's speaking with the very words of God, but I'm going to go and give a a history that is, as best I can be in this short time that you give me, and I'm covering 2,000 years, uh, is actually influenced by the biblical perspective on the world. It's a Christian history. It's not the Christian, but it's a Christian history because I believe under the word of God, I can know certain things are happening and certain things will happen because the Bible tells me that's what's happening and why it's happening and tells me where it's going. Secular historians can never do this because they're not allowed to include God in their thinking, which means they're always wrong. So our history is first and foremost found in the New Testament. But it can be traced through the centuries, though it comes in clearest focus for us in the Reformation. There's the first 1600 years done. <laughs> but I did cover the whole lot, didn't I? I, I? Never let it be said that I left any part out. It was all covered there. But we're Trinitarian. Because of the fights in the fourth century and and we 've come to understanding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that Mary is the mother of God because of the fifth century and we 've come to understand our views on on the presence of the lord 's Supper through the struggles that happened between Retramus and Radbertus. and we the whole history of Christianity has shaped us, but the Reformation it all kind of comes into a clarity, a great clarity that uh, that is very conscious of its history beforehand. When you read the Reformers, they are great ones for quoting the Patriarchs. They quote the Fathers all the time, as well as the Bible, but they kept looking back to the history to see how the arguments developed in the history, for which shows where they stand at the time of the Reformation. In the Reformation... The key arguments that we have are justification by faith alone and the authority of the Bible. But I want to suggest to you that the Reformation basically was a national movement. It was still a communalist thinking. See, when a canton in Switzerland became Protestant, the whole canton became Protestant. If it remained Catholic, the whole canton remained Catholic. And so in Switzerland, there was a a war between the Protestant cantons and the the Catholic cantons. But it wasn't an individualistic thing, it was a community thing. Uh, You see it in the history of England, classically, that... You know, under Henry VIII, we were national Catholic Protestant goodness knows what. Under the Edward, the, uh, Edward uh, we, we all became suddenly Protestant. And then under Mary, we were suddenly Roman Catholic. And then under Elizabeth, we were Protestant again. And you say, well, for, for us, we think, how can you change religions like that? And for certain individuals in the day, they couldn't, which is why they got burnt at the stake. But for the community as a whole well, it just changed from one to the other to the other and you learned to to go with the wind in where your doctrinal position was and what you believed or didn't believe at any time with varying degrees of comfort because the nation was. And so Scotland became Presbyterian. Oh, there were some holdouts there that would uh, remain Catholic but basically the nation under the preaching uh, became Presbyterian as a character. And so there were Lutheran countries like Germany and and parts of the northern. There were uh, reformed countries, Calvinist countries. Uh, There were national churches. National churches don't make much sense to us. We are such individualists. That's partly because of the 18th century, which is the next high watermark to pay attention to with us. That is the evangelical awakening. For the great point of evangelicalism and the evangelical awakening was evangelism and regeneration that is as luther preached justification by faith alone whitfield preached you must be born again now that regeneration that gospel message of rebirth only makes sense in the context of justification by faith alone and the authority of scripture Uh, The idea that you can be a a Roman Catholic evangelical is a nonsense. uh, Because the evangelicalism of rebirth undermines the whole sacramental system of Roman Catholicism. It can't be. But within Protestantism, no, no, rebirth, regeneration fits magnificently within that context. But it was in the context of Protestant countries that we preached in evangelicalism, the nature of rebirth, and pressed home individual salvation. It was the 18th century. It was the time of the Enlightenment. Things had moved on in some ways intellectually. The corporate nation of the nationalities was changing. And so you now started to see, because it was quite clear from latitudinarianism, from the kind of low church English anti-Catholic nothingness theologically that you could be baptised, confirmed, ordained and still unconverted. That was quite clear. Unimaginable to the reformers because to the reformers you'd come out of Catholicism by a clear understanding of justification by faith alone which set your heart alight. But now by the 18th century, yes, You could be as dead as an Anglican or as a Presbyterian or as anybody else. You could be as dead as a doornail in a Protestant way as opposed to being in a Roman Catholic way. And we now started preaching, you must be born again. And it was individual salvation which gave the great emphasis. I don't like it, but for the sake of brevity, let me give you that uh, four-point characteristic of evangelicalism that Bebbington uh, has written, which you see in every second book, so I'll use it. But one of these days, I'll work out a better one. That is, the evangelicals are asked by their biblicism, their particular commitment to the Bible, their centrism, that is, Christ and him crucified, the atoning work of Christ. Three, conversionism, that you must be born again. And fourth, their activism. They didn't kind of sit and wait. They went out into the world and they sought to change the world. And there's a certain sense in which that is evangelicalism. That is, I'm a reformed man because I'm a Protestant of the reformed persuasion, not the Lutheran persuasion. I'm reformed. But I'm also evangelical. Those two things are not inconsistent in the slightest, but they are not identical either. They've actually got different emphases to them. They're theologically consistent, but with different emphases. Now, in the 19th century, the activism of evangelicals continued with the preaching of the gospel and into world mission, but also moved into the transformation of society and the undoing of evangelicalism. It came about mainly through voluntary organisations and this is the beginning of the parachurch organisations, not through church but through all kinds of other things. So for example the Church Missionary Society was founded in 1799, I'm going on a very English kind of tour of this kind of thing but you can find parallels elsewhere, but the Church Missionary Society started in 1799. The Bible Society started in 1804. The London Jews Society, as a mission to the Jews, started in 1809. The Colonial and Continental uh, Missionary Society started in the 1820s. Uh, there are all kinds of different organisations go through from the beginning of the uh, from the from the uh, beginning of the 19th century, right through. So, for example, the Children's Special Service Mission started in London in 1867 and developed into Scripture Union and uh, Beach missions and the like. Uh, throughout the uh, 19th century, there was the development of the Ragged Schools. Uh, thousands and thousands of children were educated through the Ragged Schools. Uh, in 1838, they were formalised, but they'd been going for 50 years before that. What were the Ragged Schools? Well they saw the poor children were not educated. Universal education was not part of the framework of society. And there were these children, many of them put into factories and the like, and with no chance of education. So on Sundays, which still had a certain degree of a Sabbatarian rest in England at that time, the church people ran schools for children and taught them basic maths, but most importantly reading and most importantly reading the Bible. And out of the ragged schools came a thing called Sunday school. But it was first and foremost an education for the impoverished children. But in that in education, they intended to evangelise them and did so. And so Sunday schools were for the, for the society to educate and evangelise the children. Now, one of the differences between me and most of you, not all of you because there's a couple of people like me, one of our differences is we were, I was at the very end of public Sunday schools. Because Sunday schools today are the children of the congregation. But when I was a boy, it was the children of the suburb. And so everybody went to Sunday school when I was a kid in the 1950s. Everyone went to Sunday school. Uh, Where I went to school, that's not exactly true. uh, Because being in Bellevue Hill, a lot went to Saturday school. But everybody went to one, either Saturday school or Sunday school as it would be, and in fact there were two comic strips, Australian comic strips, uh, in the f- middle of the 20th century, Fatty Finn and Ginger Meggs, and these were both naughty larrikin boys of Australia, and each of them was constantly playing truant against Sunday school. Now, you see, you would not write a comic strip like that today. If you were taught, writing a comic strip of a naughty larrikin boy, the idea that he was nicking out from Sunday school and avoiding the Sunday school teachers, it just wouldn't connect, would it? Now, in the little church I was in, it wasn't a big church, it a very small, fairly insignificant church at Bellevue Hill, Now. Uh, When I finished there, I was about uh, 20 when I went to Moore College, I was the Sunday school superintendent and we had 38 Sunday school teachers and about 350 kids in Sunday school every week. But it was the kids of the suburb. Hardly any of us had parents who were in church. Hardly any of us. Even amongst the Sunday school teachers. Now, because I'm a believer I eyewitness, there's somebody here who was in my Sunday school at the time and who is amongst us this night and can bear witness and testimony that that's what it was like. You'll have to guess who. However, they are here even now. But it was just, that's how most of us got converted in Sunday school. Uh, and that's where the church was fed, through the Sunday schools. But it came out of the ragged schools of the 19th century there were any number of activist evangelistic uh, organisations. YMCA, YWCA were set up in the 1840s in order to evangelise young men and young women moving to the city from the country, moving away from home, setting up home for themselves had started there. Uh, YMCA spread across the world, many of these things. And YMC has contributed to the world culture one famous thing, which is basketball. The man who invented basketball, Dr Naismith, invented it because the where he was in the YMCA, it was too cold, it was middle Middle, uh, North uh, America, too cold for the kids to go out and play during the winter, and so he wanted an inside game that he could attract young men to come and play. And that's where basketball came from extraordinary isn't it, bizarre piece of useless information, I've got it, now I've offloaded it, <laughs> that's your problem now but we were the activists who set up organisation after organisation with these evangelistic aims and goals, of course the C in YMCA doesn't make the slightest sense these does it, does it or YWCA for that matter into the in that 19th century, though, the evangelicals also, because the 18th century evangelism was so effective and so many people were converted, that they actually started to make a difference in the social life of the, of the community and the world. The the great victory of the anti-slave traffic is one of the things that we uh, know of, but there are all kinds of things. with Mr Shaftesbury uh, and Wilberforce both working on a whole range of social interventions and a group at Clapham in the southern suburbs of London of rich men, bankers and the like, who actually funded all kinds of Christian activities and worked at bringing about gospel things and social things into the community. It was these men who actually got into the colonial secretaries department so as to make sure that there were chaplains appointed in the different colonies like New South Wales and Victoria and actually made sure that the ones who went were actually evangelicals, not just chaplains. And so early formal Christianity in Australia was heavily influenced by an evangelical group in London uh, putting people in power uh, Latrobe was the first governor of Victoria. Uh, he was a keen evangelical man, uh, which is great embarrassment to the La Trobe University today. But there is the character of the spread of the 19th century. In the 20th century, it was marked by Armenian piety and university ministries. The Armenian piety gave us all manner of holiness movements, uh, Keswick had started in the 1880, 1860, 70, something like that, and grew, uh, came to Australia then. But the Church of Christ was one of those groups. And, of course, in the 20th century, the early Pentecostal movements and the revivalism that became the way of life in the United States. The university ministries had always been important. Back in the 16th century, a lot of the Reformation came through the university ministries. Uh, Sir Marcus Lone wrote two very useful books in history, if you want to read them. Uh, one's called the Oxford Succession and the other's called the Cambridge Succession. And he tells you of the ministry that came through those two great universities and how they influenced the society. And in the 18th century, there was the great father of all university ministries in a sense of modern university ministries, that is Charles Simeon in Cambridge. But as the university ministry spread across the world and the world student ministry took place, uh, which uh, came out of uh, North America in particular... A very decided and important point happened in 1910 when the Cambridge Christian Union, called affectionately the Kiku, uh, disassociated itself with the world student movement over the doctrine of the atonement and so clarified the nature of evangelicalism. Both sides of the disagreement agreed with the subject of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The difference was the Kiku men said it is central whereas the world student movement group said it's one of the truths we need to have now you'll still hear that today when you hear people say look there's different models of the atonement by which they generally then get to mean and you can choose whichever one you like most so there's Christus Victor and there's all these there's you know propitiation kind of model and but there's the the model of love and there's and you go through the different models and there's truth in all of these models I will say but yet if Jesus doesn't die in a propitiatory way to turn aside the wrath of God if it's not the penal substitution none of the others actually work they're not all equal models that you can pick and choose which one you like they're all taught in the scriptures therefore you have got to accept them all but the logic of them requires you to accept penal substitutionary atonement though that is the one that when people start talking about the models of the ministry they're always keen for you not to believe it They set it up so that you won't believe that one but yet that is the critical one. Now that's the fight that happened in 1910 in Cambridge University. From that fight was established the InterVarsity Fellowship, the IVF which these days we can't call the IVF because it produces very strange babies. What we've now got to have is the AFES, the IFES, all those ES things that are around the world and the student volunteer movement, the whole SCM as it then became, frittered away into nothingness ultimately. So most of you have never heard of the student Christian movement, I'm glad to say. But it was still alive and well in Australia in the 1960s. It was still functioning, but it finally faded as the intervarsity work of evangelicals grew and covered the world. That student ministry was really important. But part also of the 19th, 20th century was the arrival of seminaries and theological colleges and Bible colleges. Uh, they became inventions. Now, yeah. uh, Moore College was 18, whatever it was, 50, something like that. But uh, SMBC was the 1920s, the Sydney Missionary Bible College. And each university started to have these Theological colleges, which really weren't part of the university colleges but were training for theology. That's because the universities had failed. You see, Harvard University was set up by Puritans uh, out of Emmanuel College, Cambridge, to train Puritan pastors. But you'd never guess that today. Uh, You've still got a theology faculty there, but the, the last thing they would train is someone to be a Puritan pastor. Uh, The universities, one after another, Princeton, all of them were set up for theological reasons but failed. And so we set up theological colleges, sometimes associated, sometimes not associated with universities, to do what you can't do in a secular university, even though the universities were started by us not to be secular. And so theological colleges became an important element of the way in which the ministers of the future were trained. And it's a relatively modern invention, though for us, you see, without our, without our helicopter view from on top, we assume it has always been. That is just what happens. We, of course, as Australians, are one of the migrant nations. I've finally tumbled this, I've been fighting this for 30 years now, but I finally got it only in the last couple of weeks. We're not a multicultural nation. That's a load of nonsense. You can't be a multicultural nation. If you're multicultural, you're not a nation. If you're a nation, you're not multicultural. The two are a contradiction in terms. We've got no intention of being multicultural because we refuse to educate people in anything other than English. Uh, we're, we're an English-speaking nation and we're going to remain an English-speaking nation. Our language is, Our government language is in English. Our courts are in English. Yes, we will allow translators into English, but it's... We're, not, we're a monocultural English-speaking nation who is a migrant nation who welcomes people from all over the world into our nation and provide for them multicultural services until they learn our ways and then they part of the migrant mix that creates the future so Australia has a Christian heritage, but being a migrant nation, you can't assume that the heritage is going to continue in the future. For it depends who the migrants are and where the migrants take it. But everybody in this room, other than the Indigenous members amongst us, are migrants. And if you go far enough back, they were too. The other great migrant nations are places like New Zealand and, and Canada and South Africa, and in other words, many of the British Empire parts, but in particular, America. It's the big migrant nation of the world. But as a migrant nation, it's very different to us. Uh, some of it was colonial like we were. Uh, Georgia was a, a colony just like Australia. In fact, it was because the English couldn't dump their convicts any, there, any longer that they found us and started dumping them here. <coughs> But some of the North American had nothing to do with government-sponsored colonies but had to do rather with very different things, namely pilgrim conscience with people who no longer could live in the national church because though the Reformation had brought the church into a reformed faith, the church was continuing to put communalism above truth. Those who ever come from an Anglican tradition, you've got to remember to be holding your head in shame at this point because we locked up John Bunyan in prison for 12 years because he preached the gospel. If you're proud to be an Anglican, you haven't thought about your heritage very carefully. Most of you aren't because you're FIC. But that's all right. When people are proud to be Anglican, remember what the Anglicans did. You see, they were communalists. We're going to have one church and only one church in this nation. The nation is Christian and this is the way we Christians are going to be in this nation. And so anyone who didn't fit that mould, which were many converted people, left and went off to America where they could be free to follow their own ways and own their own guns to shoot each other with later. Because they won't give the guns to the government because they know what governments do with guns they persecute minorities so that's why they won't give up their guns apart from the fact they like shooting each other and so inside America you see the Baptists who were the Anabaptists, but there's such a diversity of thing under the title Anabaptists. But see, the Baptists were never the communalists. The Baptists were always the anti-communalists. The head of the church is Christ, not the head of the church is the Queen. Very different kind of mentality. And you enter the church not by birth, but by baptism. A very different kind of mentality. They flourished in the kind of migrant community of North America. Uh, Similarly, the Congregationalists and the like. But Australia was a state-planted kind of nation. And so we carried on the idea of European denominations. Hangovers, I call them, from Europe. The Reformation ones, Anglicans, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Reforms, Baptists, Congregationalists, they all came. And every country town you tend to go to in Australia and look around, you will find on the corners, there's the Methodist Church, there's the Presbyterian Church, there's the Anglican Church. there's the, where Everyone set up their own denomination back here in Australia. And we added in, of course, some of the evangelical uh, denominations of the 18th century. There's the Methodist Church or the 19th century, there's the Brethren Church or the Pious Revival Churches or there's the Church of Christ or there's the 20th century, the Assemblies of God. And so there's this multiplicity of churches in each community. So the sense of communal church going was never there. It was individual, but it was not individual, it was ethnic church going. The basis of our churches was ethnicity really, uh, I don't know, is ethnicity the right word? I mean, all Anglo-Saxons, but it was class. In the 1980s, Professor Boomer, who's down at Monash University, he's an Anglican clergyman and a sociologist, he actually analysed the voting patterns of Methodists and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Baptists and found that, Uh, uh, Anglicans and Presbyterians voted Conservative and the Baptists and the Methodists voted uh, for Labour uh, at that time, which reflects the church chapel division of, of Britain. See, the church is the Church of Scotland and the Church of England, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans. They're the Conservative establishment churches whereas the evangelicals of Wesley and Whitfield, they preached amongst the working classes and saw the working classes converted. You move 200 years later into Australia, into Victoria, if that's Australia, and there you see the voting patterns, the social background patterns remain the same. Such is the power of this kind of cultural ethnicity, for want of a better word, that people have. And so, the denominations continue. However, over time, the denominations get more committed to the traditions and organisational rules than the gospel and theology. Over time, institutions protect themselves against the gospel. All institutions. Because, you see, the gospel is bigger than the institutions. You can never institutionalise truth. Can't do it. It's called Roman Catholicism. The idea that this institution has the truth, has the monopoly of the truth, cannot err. It's nonsense. You can't institutionalise truth. I love the FIC. I look around amongst my brothers and sisters, and I'm not, but but you can't, it, you need to know. You will not succeed if your dream is that this is going to be the non denomination denomination where the truth is always maintained. You're whistling in the dark, my friends. Forget it. You've got tickets on yourself. It's not going to woe. First breeze and I'll be blowing off you. It's not true. Never was, never will be. You can't institutionalise truth. And what happens is the institution controls and censors the truth. Because, secondly, in these denominations, first is traditions and organisations rule. The second little point of this I'd make is that false teachers and teachings will arise. That's what he says. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in any and every church. It's going to happen breaks your heart if you're the pastor and it happens in your church it's going to happen get used to it some time ago oh I know about eight years ago seven eight years ago I I was speaking to my old friend Chapo on the phone and I said Chapo Chapo's a very sympathetic kind man as you'll hear in this little interchange I said Chapo I'm just sick of fighting and he said get used to it and hung up He's right. That's the job. Get used to it. Yeah. When I see him next I'll tell him you enjoyed that. <laughs> False teaching often starts in benign ways and develops. It often starts with very little variation from the truth. You see a good lie needs to be covered with a lot of truth. I don't want to tell you how to lie, but let me give you a quick lesson in telling lies. The more truth you can have in your lie, the more likely people are to believe your lie. And so there'll be a lot of truth in the lie that comes. And often the people who are teaching it don't realise the lie that is within it. They've heard it from somewhere else and from someone else. And it comes from friends who are benign, but their teaching is anything but it. It often comes with them with adamant agreement with the fundamentals. One of the signs of a false teacher is the person who says, let me show you my evangelical heritage. When I was a boy, I was at Scripture Union Beach Mission. Then I joined this, then I joined that. When someone starts telling you that, Let the bells ring in your head that heresy is about to come. For an evangelical is not someone who used to be in organisations, an evangelical is someone who teaches the gospel now. He may or may not have been in any of those organisations, but where he was doesn't matter. What he is now is what matters. And of course, to be a good false teacher, you must be charming. Charming. Uh, The nasty person never is believed. That doesn't mean, my brothers and sisters, therefore you should try to be nasty. You don't have to try. So, from within come the wolves. Now, in Australia, the Anglicans were sideswiped by the Anglo-Catholics in the 19th century. And those Anglo-Catholics in the 19th century became liberal Catholics in the 20th century. And one area after, after another, dioceses as we call them as Anglicans, fell into the hand of Catholics and then liberals. Some of them only late. The Diocese of Melbourne still had a majority of evangelical clergy in the 1960s. But between 1960 and 1990, 50, of their 180 parishes ceased to be evangelical and became liberal Catholic in that 30-year period. And so Melbourne was lost to evangelical Anglicanism in that 30-year period. But many have gone a long way away from the Gospel long before that. Occasionally some came back, and a few have come back recently. Armidale came back. Tasmania is moving in the right direction since the last bishop. Northwest Australia, all 300 people of them. And (laughs) the Presbyterians, the Methodists and the Congregationalists all became liberal. The thing that they agreed upon was evangelicalism was wrong and the Reformation was a mistake. And so in the end, in the 1970s, they joined together in the Uniting Church, which has as its basic fundamental document, complete contradiction. We believe everything that Calvin wrote, everything that Wesley wrote, even though Wesley and Calvin totally disagree with each other and everything. So they just accepted everybody's doctrinal basis, even though there was disagreement, because they were postmodern. So you don't have to worry about agreements or disagreement. Contradiction doesn't matter. And so, of course, 40, 50 years on, the Uniting Church is further and further and further away from any hope of the gospel a minority Presbyterian group were able to stay outside, but the minority Presbyterian group was heavily influenced by the crazy Scots. Not all Scots are crazy. Let me just think. I think I've met one. Um, not all Cots are But there were traditionalists, you see, who wanted to hang on to their Scottishness, so wouldn't join the Uniting Church. And fortunately there are enough of them to join with the evangelicals who were left and who were less than a third but needed a third to stay out in order to continue. And so the Presbyterian Church was reborn through the Uniting Church. Congregationalists, of course, uh, each congregation had to make its own mind whether to come in or stay out. And across Australia, I've got to look to Michael to get the number. How many? I can't see where Michael is now. He's 50? Yeah, 50 50 churches across Australia stayed out as independent congregations. And then the uh, Methodists, though, they were under dictatorship, one in, all in. So once they got 50%, the whole Methodist church had to become part of the uniting church. Uh, The Baptists also shifted. You see, the Baptist was a union of Baptist churches. It's like saying the Fellowship of Independent Churches. Each Baptist church is self-governing. And they were in a union of Baptist churches. But the union of Baptist churches became the Baptist union and then became the Baptist denomination. And in different parts of Australia, it headed off. So Victorian Baptists have been notorious liberal for a long period of time. And the uh, New South Wales Baptist Church held itself together by avoiding controversy on issues such as the Millennium and uh, Arminianism. And so if you hold yourself together by never discussing Calvinism, uh, you're not really holding yourself together. And so inevitably uh, it runs in a hundred different theological directions in the same way. Now you add to the false teachers and teachings taking over each of the denominations and to the migrant experience. Because, you see, prior to... Well... uh, the middle of the 20th century up till then shall I say going to church was a trip home that may not mean much to you because you're not a migrant but it means a lot to a migrant and a migrant can be many generations my father always talked about London as home go home to London my father was a sixth generation Australian that's unimaginable isn't it today but, you see, he was born 1910. It was, that was, when the Falklands War was on, he and his mates used to sit around and discuss how our boys are going in the Falklands. There were no Australians in the Falkland War, I don't know if you knew that or not, but they weren't. But it made no difference to him. Where Britain was fighting, he was fighting. You see, I was raised as a British citizen. It wasn't until Gough Whitlam came, I think it was, that I became an Australian citizen. Up until then, there weren't Australian citizens, there were just British citizens. And we were British citizens. But then we got kicked out of the common market, which we were never in. And they went into it, which we didn't want them to. And so we became Australian citizens overnight. But prior to that, you see, they thought of themselves as Brits. Now, in those days, you either went home to England or you went home to Ireland. <laughs> and so the real split in Australia was between Irish Catholics and Protestant British. That was the real split. Oh, you had a few others. You had a little number of Austrian Jews. You had a number of Lutherans from Germany who were down in uh, uh, the hills outside Adelaide making wine and so on. But by and large, that was the division, you see. And we were a Protestant nation, a Protestant nation, uh, because the Catholics were quite small, 20% or less. While the other Protestant churches maintained the, the bulk of the population. But after the Second World War, that all started to change as different migrants were brought in. At first, white migrants from Europe, resettlement after the Second World War... But that brought in Italians, that brought in Greeks, that brought a bit of a whole change. We started having orthodox numbers in large numbers. Previously to that, there was a Greek here, there was a Greek there. And they generally sent their kids to the Anglican church because they didn't like the Roman Catholics. And Anglicans had enough kind of formality to kind of vaguely get away with it. So, but then there were enough Greeks to have their own church. And so orthodoxy came a factor inside Australia. And then the, uh, the Irish were not the only Roman Catholics. There were Italian Catholics. But Italian Catholics are very different to, Roman, to Irish Catholics. Irish Catholics are anti-Protestant. Italian Catholics are lazy. It's a different kind of atmosphere that happens. Polish Catholics are believers. And they started to come. But they really actually believed. Because they were fighting communism. They didn't care about Protestants. They were anti-communists. And so the whole nature of our denominational hangover changed... But the nature of going home each week didn't change. Once you as a Greek go into the church at the Greek Orthodox Church, you could be in your village back at home. Everything is exactly the same as the village back home. So the cheapest, quickest, easiest way to go home, go to church. What we evangelicals did was work inside our denominational churches. We evangelised within the church. Because there were so many non-Christians going to church. Every church was full of non-Christians, especially children at Sunday school age. And so our children's work and our youth work were the evangelistic outreach of the church. You never had to go outside that. You know, there were 300 children there in Sunday school for me to evangelise with my friends who were teaching them It was just every Sunday opportunity, I didn't have to go and knock on doors to find other children to evangelise, I had my hands full with the numbers who were turning up anyway and those who weren't turning up here were turning up down the church down the road so it didn't make any difference. What we had to do was evangelise the church because the church was really the only social club that operated on Sundays, it was the only thing going and so nominal Christianity was the normality of Australia but It was increasingly confused and uncommitted. So the church in which I grew up in was actually run by the Masonic Lodge. Every member of the parish council except one was on the committee of the local Masonic Lodge. And every now and then, through the course of the meeting, they forgot where they were and they moved from church matters to lodge matters. And occasionally they remembered and asked the member if he wouldn't mind stepping outside for a few moments while they discussed the secret business of the lodge. He told me about it with some considerable degree of aggrievement many years later. But also, you need to look at the traditional migrant characters we had. See, what was our population made of? Convicts, gold diggers, refugees, basically peasants, materialists chasing a dream of more money, and now we had religious diversity orthodox and then once we moved outside the white australia policy buddhists muslims jews and the diversity has only been expanding and increasing ever since another thing that happens with the dominational churches and the old history of these churches you're still with me you're still hanging on do we need to stand up turn around and pick a bale of cotton well after this next point you can I mean, the other thing that happens is There is a great truth in the generational pattern that you hear about. That is, the first generation is converted and preaches the gospel, the second generation believes the gospel, the third generation doubts some elements of the gospel, and the fourth generation denies the gospel. Please do not see that as being an absolute certainty that's going to happen and say, oh, my parents are Christians, therefore I'm second generation, therefore I don't preach it, I only believe it, or my grandparents were, so I must be a doubter." It's not automatic, but there is that shift that happens across time very often unless we purposely row against it. Because you've got to purposely row against it. But you can see it, for example, in the Bob Hawke family. Bob Hawke's grandfather was an out-and-out evangelical. Bob Hawke's father was a liberal. Bob Hawke was an agnostic. Bob Hawke's children were atheists. There's four generations of a family. But the great-grandfather, Bob's grandfather, he was an out-and-out, teetotaling evangelical of the 19th century. It's it's just a, a relatively common... And it happens institutionally, as you can see in those big books, which you needn't read called The Dying of the Light. Can't remember who wrote them, but they're they're bricks, not books. And they recount the institutional shift that has taken place across generations inside the big universities of America, all founded for Christian purposes and now not even vaguely Christian, in fact, anti-Christian, has happened. How do you get from Christian institution to anti-Christian institution well that book The Dying of the Light and there's a, sequence to it as well, a sequel to it as well traces what happens and it's a generational thing that happens and the wicked generation is the second generation because they don't go on preaching like the first. One of the big problems for FIEC my friends is who's going to replace you who are planting the churches? The first generation plants the church with all the enthusiasm, vision, clarity as to why we're doing it. We're risking all. We're going out there. We've got no support. we're, we're, We're here struggling. And this is the great excitement commitment. But when you move, we've got to bring a second pastor in. And will he have the same vision, drive, enthusiasm, passion for the lost that got you out there in the first place and will the church have it church planting's big problem is second generational how do we plan for that I mean I'm all for FIC we really really am all for but FIC has to face this problem you see we're not really ultimately independent it doesn't work like that we're part of a tradition now we're creating the tradition now but we've got to look at how do we, where's the succession planning that has happened now. Some of our churches are in the second generation. Now, OEC is in the second generation. That's right, isn't it? Right. I mean, we, we we have some, but and Hunter is kind of. But the first generation was kind of different to where we're. The, we, there are some, but that's a big issue, right? Because it's the second generation that softens the edge of the gospel that's there in the first generation. And so, the evangelicalism has spread across the, uh, uh, the Australian nation. Now, I've got about 15 more minutes to do, but I just think you most likely need to stand up and turn around and sit down again, don't you? Now we come to the interesting part of where we're actually hearing about ourselves. <laughs> evangelicals have always been in Australia from the time of first settlement white settlement evangelicals have been here because you see Australia was started during the evangelical revival of the 18th century Wilberforce and Newton were personally involved in the in the penal colony making sure that the chaplains were evangelical selecting them making sure they came here writing to them commonly and Marsden, you see, became the great missionary to and the apostle to New Zealand and seeing the Maoris converted, just as Mr. Threckold was to the indigenous peoples in the north central coast of New South Wales. Mr. Threkeld was doing incredible evangelistic work amongst indigenous peoples in the 1820s, learning their languages, translating the Bible into their languages, teaching them to read and write. All those kinds of things were happening from very early on. The Congregationalists were founded here by Pascoe Crook who came from with the uh, London Missionary Society. He was chased off Tahiti by the cannibals there and landed in Sydney but that was uh, before 1810 because he held the first lay administration of the Lord's Supper uh, at the time of the the Rum Rebellion. The Presbyterians were led by Dunmore Lang. Uh, The Baptists had 105% church attendance that is because their membership was so great that all their members turned up and they always had outsiders turning up as well. That was an extraordinary statistics come from the early Baptists. And big evangelical families came into the scene. The Youngs, the uh, sugar people of Bundaberg. You see, we brought Kanaka labours in from the South Seas and they started Sunday school amongst the Kanakas. And when we kicked the Kanakas out back to their home islands, they then set up the South Seas Evangelical Mission and continued the whole work of evangelising the islands out there. That family uh, started the Katoomba Christian Convention in 1903 up at their home in Katoomba. Uh, the family split over the question of selling rum, uh, being sugar producers, uh, and, uh, but the Christian family, the Youngs, all riddled their way through uh, the Christian community in Australia, and I guarantee that there is a young descendant in this room. I guarantee there's more than one young descendant in this room. They're everywhere, actually, uh, the number of people uh, they had. Other families, like the Begbys. You know, Mr Begby got converted through a, a mission from Mr Grubb. Uh, he had four sons who became clergymen and four daughters who married clergymen. So suddenly you got eight clergy families out of the one family. Uh, The Langford Smiths was another family. All these families at the beginning of the 19th century, evangelical families, riddled through the community. And conventions were set up all across Australia. Uh, The Belgrave Heights one in 1918. I don't know when Mount Tambourine was established, but uh, Orange Grove over in Perth. By the end of World War II, we were this nominally majority British Protestant country in opposition to the Irish Catholics. But the evangelicals were on the rise... Through the parachurch movement, scripture union, IVF or AFES, convention ministries, the missionary societies, crusaders if you went to a private school, and it all ran around and round in a circle that grew itself. But you became a Christian through the parachurch movement and evangelised in your denominational church. Most of the denominational churches though were fundamentally nominal Baptists weren't because of the nature of their, their profession, but most of them were. In some places like Sydney, the Anglicans weren't, but most places they were. This kind of evangelical growth actually continued until 1959 with the Billy Graham crusade. And I know it's your grandparents and the rest who will speak to you of it, but it really did stop the nation. Not only here in Sydney, but across the nation in Melbourne. It went for a month down there and it stopped the streets of Melbourne. That, that, that was the closest we've ever come to seeing Australians take Christianity seriously. was the 59 Billy Graham Crusades. But evangelicalism was increasingly resisted by denominational churches. Even in the face of these incredible crusades, especially because of these incredible crusades. We evangelicals were then hit with three whammies. Firstly, the whammy of non-Protestant migration. That really kind of changed the landscape for us because we could no longer just evangelise within our church because there were now more and more people coming outside the church and so our position in society was getting statistically weaker because of these many people from elsewhere. Second the baby boomers' sexual revolution. If you want to capture the two points, the high point and the low point, 1959, Billy Graham crusade, 150,000 people out of the cricket ground of the show ground. 1963, we're only talking four years later, the Beatles, 100,000 people out welcoming the Beatles. And make no you know, uh, was, uh, drugs and sex and rock and roll... It was total degeneracy. That's what the... Beautiful music, but total degeneracy. That's what it was... That it was about. Four years, that had happened. Why? What? What had happened? Well, the baby boomers, you see. 1963, they were 18. Suddenly, this huge population of children who had been raised to be totally self-centred were let loose into adulthood, so-called. And we lost... Then the third whammy for the evangelical cause, and it was the worst whammy of all, a charismatic division. Church after church after church was split over neo-Pentecostalism. And the whole impact of evangelical strength was lost as half our people left and went off into a false teaching. But worse still, for the first 20 years, they didn't leave They stayed in the church to evangelise the church into the second blessing. So instead of us now preaching to nominals, salvation, they were preaching to the converted, second blessing. And so it was just conflict, confusion, and we stopped evangelising because we had to defend. And so... The great strength we had risen up to in the 19, late 1950s uh, was really undermined. Scripture Union has never recovered. Did you know Scripture Union actually owned an office block in York Street, Sydney, Clarence Street, Clarence York? Originally, originally Elizabeth Street. Originally Street. Hmm. I don't remember the one Elizabeth Street, but then yeah, yeah. Now they operate out of a garage up the Central Coast it's because they would never choose between the evangelicals and the charismatics. And so the evangelicals lost confidence in them because they kept on putting charismatic things on and the charismatics would never support them because they knew that really Scripture Union is not charismatic. And so they fell between the two stools because they wouldn't actually make a choice for either. Disaster, really, because Scripture Union owns beach missions even more important scripture union owns icf and the state government will never allow another organization into the schools if icf disappears from the schools the government will not allow another organization to come and take its place and icf owns the scripture union owns the title deeds of icf but evangelicals no longer trusted it and charismatics never did they just used it and So, our parachurch, some of our parachurch movements like Scripture Union were utterly gutted in New South Wales. Didn't happen in Queensland, I understand. Queensland Scripture Union, I understand, continued much stronger. So, there's variations across Australia. I do remember I'm very Sydney side. Um, I don't mean to be. Well, I do mean to be, but I'm sorry if I'm implying that. Um, And so, where can anything come from? Well, In the midst of all this, from my perspective, one great thing happened. One great organisation happened, really, and that was Moore College. That was the anchor that held evangelicals and the pressures that we were under. It it came about, I mean, there are other evangelical colleges, don't get me wrong, but see, Ridley College had Leon Morris, who was a great one, never underestimate. Leon was a great one. But the trouble with Ridley was it kept changing principles and it didn't keep with the consistency. you never had another great one quite like Leon Morris. And so they came and went and came and went. And, of course, it was under the pressure of not having a diocese behind it because Melbourne had lost its way as a diocese, so the Anglican Church there didn't support it, whereas the Anglican Church in Sydney did because of 1910. For in 1910, when the Cambridge people fought over the atonement... The vice-president of the Kikyu was a man called Howard Mole, who then became a missionary in China and then in 1933 became the Archbishop of Sydney. When he became the Archbishop of Sydney, the first thing he did was seek the salvation of Moore College because at that time it was, it was kaput. Um, the, the principal and the vice-principal really only agreed on one thing, they belonged to the same lodge. That was the level of more college then. And so the principal moved on, and so he thought, I've got to save this college. I've got to create this college. So what did he do? He got an Irishman. It's the only way he can save Australia. (laughs) Bring out an Irishman and appoint him as the principal of the college. And the man was, of course, T.C. Hammond, who on the boat on the way out wrote a book called In Understanding Be Men. On the way out, Gary wrote a postcard saying, I don't understand women. (laughs) That was what it was, wasn't it, Gary? Something like that. And in Understanding Me Men's a great book of doctrine that he wrote. He was about 60 when he came. And so it was only expected to be here a short time. He continued as principal from 1935 until 1953. And through that period, Howard Mole and T.C. Hammond actually recaptured the Diocese of Sydney for evangelicalism and, more importantly, captured Moore College. Moore College was desperate, let me tell you. Uh, Stephen Bradley, who became a bishop in South Africa many years later, as was a missionary bishop all his life, but he told me when he was uh, a young man in 1933, Howard Mole said, Go to Moore College, I want you to go there and I want you to find any evangelical and start a prayer meeting for the salvation of the Moore College. And so they had a prayer meeting for the conversion of the principal, which was found out about and actually appeared in the evening newspapers, Students Praying for the Conversion of the Principal of Moore College. And Stephen Bradley was there. What they didn't know was Stephen Bradley was there at the command and direction of the Archbishop of Sydney of the day, which was the case. That's how dire it was in the 1930s, you see. But following T.C. Hammond was Sir Marcus Lone from 54 to 58 and then Broughton Knox from 58 to 85. These men dragged back training the clergy in gospel ministry in what was to become the largest theological college in Australia and the intellectual leadership of evangelical in in Australia at a time when we really had nowhere else to go. It was really fairly desperate. There were times when there were good things to go to, like Ridley when Leon Morris was there. But there are other times when there was nowhere else to go to if you really wanted to be trained in teaching of the Word of God. T.C. Hammond was an old-fashioned Irish street fighter. Uh, church, uh, he, he, was, he was a Protestant through and through. And he fought against Catholics. He uh, used to run a radio show on Sunday nights. He was on 2CH. CH stands for church. It's now 1170. And that station, they only had AM in those days... And 2CM was two St. Mary's. Twelve, seven, twelve. 2SM was, uh, what's it today? I don't know what 2SM is, but it's still alive. It's awful, that's what it is. And (laughs) SM stood for uh, St. Mary. And... Mr. Mr Rumble used to, Father Rumble used to attack the Protestants from that on Sunday night and, and TC used to attack the Catholics on Sunday night and that show went on for year after year after year uh, as you could tune in to whichever one you wanted to listen to depending if you wanted to confirm your, your views or wanted to challenge your views as you could listen but that was the nature of society in those days you see but he brought us back he was a great man, and he brought us back into faith, and cre- trained a whole generation of clergy because he was there so long. Howard Mole died in 1958. Howard Mole was the man who brought Billy Graham to Australia, but he died before Billy arrived. But he was the one who who did it. Um, Sir Marcus Lone then became an Archbishop, and Broughton Knox took over. That was in. You see, Broughton Knox took over in '58 just before the Billy Graham crusade. And for the next decade, I don't know the statistics anymore, but it was something like three quarters or nine out of ten people who were in Moore College were converted at the Billy Graham crusade of 1959. And so this gave a population of students to train who had been converted. T.C. Hammond was dealing with very small numbers, but Broughton had the advantage of a big burst of numbers in the 60s, who had been converted in the Billy Graham crusade. But Broughton had new fights to fight and brought new emphases. Three in particular, which became the hallmark of evangelicalism across Australia and became the reason for FIEC. One, the doctrine of the church. Because we'd brought in an English archbishop who tried to clamp down on evangelicalism again. He was an Anglican first and an evangelical second. He said that as soon as he got off the boat and we knew that he really, we'd made a mistake. Mercifully, he only stayed for five or six years. But during those five or six years, Broughton had to actually fight the case against him and he worked out what the doctrine of the church was. It was not unique. You can find the same teaching in uh, the Kittle Bible, uh, Kittle uh, Word Book of Theology by, um, I've forgotten who wrote that article. You can find it in uh, the teaching of A.M. Stibbs, Church U- Local and Universal. It wasn't unique to Broughton, but Broughton was the one who was in a theological college who could train a whole generation of clergy in a view of the church. The key idea of the church that he teaches is its eschatological setting. That is the key. Sure, he said the local church is the church, but he shifted from the denomination being the church to the heavenly church. He shifted from an institution to a heavenly gathering. And so the institutional expression of the denomination and the institute is not where church is at. Church is where you are on Sunday morning and where you are in heaven. <laughs> That shift in thinking and understanding liberates you from nearly all the structures that had so overwhelmed church life everywhere. And so as nominalism declined, church authorities became more and more fierce in controlling the decline. And across Australia, the major denominations are slowly and steadily going out of business selling up the properties. That's just across the nation and it's not just Anglicans, it's Methodists, it's Lutherans, it's, it's Uniting, it's Baptists, it's everywhere. But Broughton taught a totally different understanding of church and ministry. And that influenced not just Sydney Anglicans, it influenced everywhere. Because the Bible colleges, their principles came from Moore College. I sat next to Broughton, I remember, in my last year at lunch, and he, somebody had just been appointed as a Bible college principal, and he said, today, every Bible college in Australia is now got, as a principal, one of my ex-students. So, of course, the whole of Australia, suddenly, Bible colleges, were teaching what Broughton was teaching about the church. And, of course, when the Presbyterians came into being... They didn't have a theological college to start with, so they sent their students to more college. And so many of the new Presbyterian ministers, the real the evangelical Presbyterian ministers, again were included into this particular perception. Second particular of Broughton's teaching is a very old, old, old one. Again, not new to him, but he brought it to the fore. That is expositional preaching. <laughs> Teach the Bible. I remember a great sermon, which Jim was there at the same time, I'm pretty sure. Prepare to preach properly or perish. That was the sermon. Prepare to preach properly or perish. Prepare to preach properly or perish. And Broughton wasn't a very good preacher. But at that time a man called John Stott kept on being flown into Australia who was a brilliant preacher and he showed us what Broughton taught us. And so a whole generation understood what to do but couldn't see how to do it and then saw John Stott do it. Chapo said he was up at Moree. He knew what he was supposed to do but couldn't do it. He went to the CMS summer school, heard John Stott. He drove to Moree as fast as he could and he burnt all his sermons and started again. But that's where John Chapman became a great preacher, out of that combination. And generation, Dudley Ford taught with Chapo, generations of preachers. Broughton's theology and understanding of what you're supposed to do. You take expositional preaching for granted, most of you. But let me tell you, it's an invention that came out of this this man being principal of Moore College. Third element didn't come from Broughton, but came from his associate, from Donald Robinson. That is biblical theology. It mediated to most of you through Donald Robinson's finest student, Graham Goldsworthy. And you can get it even in easier versions through Vaughan Roberts. If You know, the English, they water everything down, but you can get a Vaughan Roberts version of it if you like. But the whole concept that there is one Bible and two Testaments and the whole Bible holds together and every part of your exposition must be connected to the total storyline of the Bible, most evangelicals in Australia take for granted... Most evangelicals in the world have not really heard of it. (laughs) Their evangelicalism is denominational evangelicalism rather than biblical theology. Once you grasp it, you can't understand how somebody doesn't see it. It just doesn't... Once you get into the world of it, it's just there. Now, it was... this, This group of people were standing alone on the bridge, so to speak, really, in giving leadership to... Australia. You see, in 1983, let me tell you how bad things were likely. In 1983, there were two AFES workers for the whole of Australia. And the AFES organisation could not afford to pay them. Today, there's 150. The previous ones had not been had any theological training. Today, of the 150, my guess is 120 of them are graduates of a theological college. That's from 1983 to 2000. That's because of Moore College in Broughton Knox, <laughs> and Howard Mole and T.C. Hammond. <laughs> That's the history that you and I take for granted. He said, "But like, Philip, I've never been to Moore College. You know, I was trained over in Perth at Trinity College, where the principal and founder was trained at Moore College under Broughton." <laughs> It's terrific we now have Trinity College in Perth. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Right? Because we need a college in Perth. We need it in Adelaide. We need it in Melbourne. We need it. We've got it in Brisbane. The fact that it comes under the Presbyterian Aegis will be due. See, evangelicals are never committed to the traditions of denominations. We work in and out of any denomination. That is the character of, of, of the evangelical activism. <laughs> If we can do it through the Presbyterians, I've got the kilt on. I'm ready to go. <laughs> huh? if, if, if I can do it through the Baptists, well, I've got a swimming pool. I'm ready. <laughs> Doesn't matter to me where I'm going to do it through. But it's not only that. You see, we've now... SMBC was on the rocks. But then David Cook came along, a more college graduate. And SMBC came to life again and is full of students, which is Terrific. Uh, some, of the, uh, the, the, some of the staff at Morling College are More College graduates now. Uh, the arrival of, uh, of, of the Presbyterians in their own college. Now, it's not only More College. I mean, there's a very fine, wonderful Presbyterian man called Alan Harmon who ran a, a Presbyterian college down in Melbourne. But the thing that has actually characterised Australian evangelicalism has been this doctrine of the church, this commitment to biblical exposition. And this understanding of biblical theology. They are the characteristics that you will see which enable church planting to happen. Because we can free ourselves from our denominationalism. And so, as it spread across Australia, it spread through the Bible colleges, it spread through AFES, it spread through conventions. See, Katoomba Convention. I was appointed the, the chairman of Katoomba Convention in 1980. Two I look at Helen, but it's something like that. I went to the convention, the main convention at Christmas time. There were a hundred people sitting in that auditorium, and I was one of the very youngest there. Well, in 1882, I was only five. Um, they were just old people. That's all there was, And there was a hundred of them. And every convention in the previous decade had finished by selling off another block of, house, uh, another block of land in the convention site to pay for the convention. And so those houses dotting around the convention site, they're the failed conventions of previous years. (laughs) Today, thousands of people are going to the conventions. And again, where does it come from? Getting the good Bible teachings that come. So it's spread across all of them. However, as new evangelicalism grew and spread... The charismatics competed with it with church planting because, in the late 1980s, they left our churches mercifully and started their own. The liberals keep undermining it by academic and by careerism, and the ecclesiastics keep on censoring it and refusing to ordain people. In the 1990s, then church planting was the way to go because, one, we saw that it was a good way to evangelise; two, because the doctrine of church liberated us to start churches anytime, anywhere. Because the gathering of God's people in heaven is expressed in the gathering in the local community. Three, because women's ordination locked us out of most denominational churches anywhere. Four, because the parachurch existence was no longer sufficient. The old model we had of scripture union and crusaders, etc., influencing the denominations was no longer working properly. And five, because it bypassed all the obstacles we had to evangelicalism spreading across Australia. And so it came into being what you are. Well, one and two churches, three and four churches then gathering together and building into the network that you've become. And so FIEC church planting has a long-term direction, not of evangelistic parachurch, but now actually creating the church, which will be here for the years that lie ahead. Therefore, you've got to lay foundations carefully and beware of the diversions the common diversions that take us from the gospel which comes from false teaching because that's what peter warns us is going to happen it's false teaching that undermines us the catholic commitment to the church which sees believing is belonging is more important than believing it's now said by protestants but they're not really protestants they're roman catholics do not be deceived. Belonging does not come before believing. Believing is the way to belong. If you don't believe, you don't belong. We preach Christ and call people to repent and believe. And likewise, the liberal commitment to social action, which is coming now out of a false Eschatology which sees that it really is important that we replenish, review, regenerate the world. None of that language is used in the New Testament of the world. It's always used at the heart of the sinner. That's what you regenerate. that's what you revive, that's it. It's never used. The, the, the apostles didn't go around planting trees. They didn't go around taking political action to undermine the government. Of They didn't go... Look what they did. They went around preaching Christ and him crucified. That's what they did. Social action is a consequence of conversion. It's a consequence of the church having numbers. But as the social action grows, evangelism nearly always disappears. Called, Jesus told the disciples that forgiveness of sins is to be preached in his name, to all nations. That's what our message is. You move off that message into trying to fix up the problems of this world, you will no longer preach that message. And we are being terribly threatened and undermined by our friends in this regard, who are pushing us and pressing us into a social action that comes out of an almost post-millennial theology, about the nature of the world to come rather than an understanding of the dire judgment that this world lives under and the total corruption of culture. We do not seek to preserve the cultures of this world, especially our own, because culture is the wickedness of humanity articulated. We're here to destroy cultures and take every thought captive. We're not here to preserve cultures, any cultures, indigenous cultures, Anglo-Saxon cultures, my culture. It's all wrong. And we are being always pushed by the charismatics into seeking experience over the word of God. Peter's warning, look back, remember, What has the gospel about? (laughs) Keep refreshing yourself in the word of God, my brothers and sisters. Chapo's on his deathbed. He died a week later. We're up on our holidays. We get a message saying Chapo's very sick. My son lives just around the corner from the hospital. I ring up Matthew and I say, mate, go and see what's happening. That sounds like Chapo's very sick. Matthew comes, he rings me back a few hours later. I said, how is he? He said, oh, he's going to die, dad you better come and I said but how is he oh he's all right he said I said what do you mean oh he gave me a 15 minute lecture on how I mustn't lose confidence in the word of God there's nothing wrong with him (laughs) that's his last sermon. he preached don't lose confidence in the word of God the charismatics are constantly encouraging us to do that look back says Peter as we wait patiently, looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, growing in grace, but always conscious that there's going to be scoffers attacking us. Don't believe them, they're wrong. Trust the word of God. Jesus is coming. A day, a thousand years, nothing. Jesus, don't, don't believe the scoffers. And false teachers are going to twist the scriptures. That's what they're going to do. And they're going to make it sound like it's biblical, but it's not what the apostle taught us. So don't be deceived and carried away by their ways because that's what's going to happen to FIEC. That's what's going to happen. And it's your job to make sure it doesn't happen in your generation. You can't look after the next generation, but make sure it doesn't happen in yours, wherever you are. And I have great confidence in you, brothers, not to trust you too much. (laughs) I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for his apostles and the ones that he trained, like Peter, and the pouring out of your spirit upon us and upon them, that they might teach your word. And we do thank you, Father, for the opportunities we have to constantly now turn back to what you did say because they wrote it down under your inspiration. And we do pray, Father, that you'd help us to so rekindle the flame of, of light of your word that we might keep pay attention to that light as in a dark place, that your word would be a lamp to our feet as we travel through this word, this world. Do pray, Heavenly Father, that all that we do may bring glory to the Lord Jesus and salvation to mankind as we preach his cross for the salvation of people and call upon people to repent and put their faith in him that they might truly be born of your spirit and in, in such come to repentance and come into your church that we may fellowship with them. Thank you, Father, for our fellowshipping together. Help us that your word may not come to any hardened heart here amongst us, but that we may all this day hear your word and be obedient to you in all things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.